On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, Basement Edition, we are talking to Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid as we do every week about some of the questions about coronavirus and COVID and all the stuff that's going on that you may have not had answered before. Questions that I haven't heard answers to, that's what we're going to talk to him about it. We are also going to be chatting about the entertainment industry. It's all shut down. So what's going to happen three, four, five, six months from now when there is no new material seemingly to put on TV or put in the movie theaters? What do we do then? What do the studios do then? Well, we'll pick that one up as well. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Every week for the last, I don't know, three, four, five weeks, again, who can keep track? We have looked forward to having Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid on with us because there are questions that I have been having as we go through this thing that honestly I haven't always heard answers to. And so we turn, turn to Dr. Khalid. He is a doctor at Mac with expertise in medicine and education and health policy and health emergencies. And uh, he has been great at answering some of these. And he joins us again for our weekly visit. Dr. Khalid, how are you today? Good. How are you? Great to speak to you. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. I know uh, you've become, as I said last week, you've become Hamilton's media star through this. So I, I'm just glad we can get a few minutes of your time. You're busy these days. Of course. Happy um, to you always. There was a study that I read about today that uh, came out in the Journal of the American Metal Medical Association. Now, just to be clear, I was not reading the Journal of the American Medical Association. That is, that's not my reading list, but I read about this. And it says that they did a study of 5,700 patients in New York City who had come in and were hospitalized with coronavirus. And what they discovered was that 94% of the people who required hospitalization had more than one disease. They had an underlying illness. Now, we've heard that an underlying illness can be a problem with this. But is, does this number surprise you, 94%? No, it doesn't surprise me, actually, because we do know from the evidence so far that the majority of cases where the worst health outcomes happen, and by that I mean patients who require intensive care units, uh, require ventilators, are ones who have an underlying health disease. So the question people ask is, what does that include? Some of it includes heart disease, high blood pressure, high blood sugar. Those patients are the ones we're most concerned about. It seems to be rather important information to have this now, to have a number beside this, because it, it surely it could offer some guidance. Yes, still seeing people, so people still have to go out for groceries and still have to go out to do other things. This should, I think, should it not offer guidance about who should be the one in your family or in your house going out maybe to get those groceries? If you're one of those people, send someone else. So I actually just, it, it's very ironic to me that you bring this up because Today, I conducted a summary of evidence on something similar to it, where they looked at the, what are the most common underlying diseases of people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. And what this study has found was that uh, people with high blood pressure, second is heart disease, third is high blood sugar, lung disease, in, the, in that order, are the most common underlying health conditions. So all that to say is that what we've seen from all the evidence of reviewing uh, more than 76,000 patients of coronavirus-19 is that the number one underlying health conditions in all of them was high blood pressure. What that tells us is exactly what you're bringing up right now is, well, what does that mean in terms of how we, we deal with coronavirus-19? Well, A, we should be testing those people first. So if we come to a time where we have limited testing kits, then who should we be giving those tests first to? Well, it's people with high blood pressure should be number one priority for us. 
people with heart disease, high blood sugar. Secondary, beyond the health system, is the point you bring up. So on a family community setting, possibly what we're looking at now is people with those conditions to tell them that you should not be the one who are, is outside exposing yourself to an increased likelihood of getting the virus. There is another medical story out there today uh, suggesting that this virus, among other things that it's doing, to those who it's really affecting is causing blood clots. Now, we saw this with Hamilton actor Nick Cordero, who lost his leg last weekend because of a blood clot as a spinoff from being in the hospital with coronavirus. Why would a virus lead to blood clots? I'm not familiar with this study you're bringing up right now, but I will caution that those kind of studies are rare, and, and, and if it is true and it is a valid study and they really looked at the virus creating a blood clot, we have to understand that what a virus does, any virus, uh, whether it's just a simple flu or if it's COVID-19, it puts a lot of pressure on our health system. So and by health system here, I mean your own system. So your body's ability to react and fight off any kind of infection or complication, right? So. Uh, if you're presented with COVID-19, which we know can, can and potentially have dramatic effects on somebody's body, if you're more likely to get blood clots, then I can see this happening. I can see how COVID-19 could lead to a very severe dramatic consequence like that. I, I would suspect, and I, you know, obviously I don't work in an emergency department, I would suspect that someone who comes in with almost any condition come in and identify as having some of the symptoms of coronavirus wouldn't automatically be given a blood thinner but if we're seeing many cases and apparently this is what the story says is that they're seeing more and more cases where people are having clots should that now be standard issue when you show up and say you have these symptoms and are testing positive we start blood thinners immediately or is that dangerous this is precisely what we've been trying to say all along which is that COVID-19 is a game changer and by that I mean is that because we're learning those things so frequently by the more data and the patients we see, our guidelines are changing. So if we actually look back into January and February and look at our medical guidelines, our policy guidelines, they are changing. They're changing daily. And how we're changing that is based on this real-time evidence. So the more cases we see where we, we're, we're seeing more patients come where COVID-19 is having an effect on blood thinning, then yes, you will see a change in the guidelines. And I think the difficulty, Scott, here is that we're not used to this kind of rapid change in guidelines. We're used to more, you know, we will see things over a couple of years, then we'll put forward guidelines, we'll have 10 million meetings, and then we will change the guideline. Whereas I think it's the first time we are facing this situation where there's a, an escalation. It's sort of on very fast forward escalation of how fast we're changing the guidelines. And we're going to see more of that over time. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, one more story, since I'm going through all my medical journal stories that I've come across, I may as well do this one too. Um, one more story that was out this week suggesting that this virus may have now morphed into 30 or more different strains. Now, a number of times when you've been on here, you and I have chatted about why have some areas of the world been hit harder by others. Could this be an answer to that, that there are just different varieties of this? So far from what I read from the evidence, we don't seem to believe that there is a mutation of the virus. Will that happen? Okay. Could that happen? For sure. Uh, so I think it would be very naive for me to say that this is not a possibility. Uh, we know that with seasons and every year the virus could mutate. Viruses generally do mutate uh, to different strains. That's why every year we create a flu vaccine that's different than the year before that, depending on what strains we think are most susceptible. So time will tell on that one. Uh, and if, if there are reporting cases where they've been able to identify the strains and see that it has mutated, great, because that will help us develop better vaccines in the future.
Yeah, as I say, I just as we talked, I have just called it up, and there's a number of different stories now. Whether they're f- true or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. If if there was a mutation, uh, does that not make developing a vaccine exponentially more difficult? No, because the way we develop the vaccines is that we develop them based on what we anticipate that majority of patients will likely face. So it's about this idea of herd immunity, which is you'll hear a lot about it in the coming weeks. Uh, the more people we can vaccinate based on the vaccine that works for the majority of the strains that are available for that virus, the better the population of the, the health of the population. In our case, from what I understand so far, is that the, we, I, we have only identified one COVID-19 strain, which therefore means the vaccine should work for the majority of our patients. Now, if it does mutate, if those reports that you're talking about are true, and it, it will just mean that we have to alter the baseline of the vaccine so it accommodates different strains. But the technology behind it would have already been developed and the infrastructure, which will help make it a lot faster. This is how we can develop the vaccine for the flu every year, uh, every single year, very fast. And the story here says that there is this study, and just so we understand where this information is coming from and add to the challenge of everything we're talking about, there is a study of Chinese scientists at the Zhejiang University in China has found these mutations. Now, here's where we again get into the difficulty. Uh, We don't know, I don't think at this point, who to believe, what scientists to believe, unless we see it with our own eyes, there could be any amount of information, which has caused all kinds of chaos, right? It's caused all kinds of questions about this mm-hmm. that we don't really know. Absolutely. So that's what have been the biggest frustration when it comes to COVID-19, is the misinformation out there and the coordination between the insane amount of information that is available at everybody's disposal. So I emphasize with everybody who's struggling to make sense of what to believe and what not to believe. One of the greatest things we have in Canada, uh, especially in Canada, is that our journalists are usually top-notch and they really do a lot of fact-checking before they report on things. Uh, And our medical community is very much evidence-based. Our government tries for the most part to base most of their decisions on the best available evidence. So I take a sort of comfort in knowing that, being in Canada and trusting our our government policies when it comes to COVID-19. Do other viruses have slight, even if they're slight, do they have slight variations? Or when you look at a virus person to person, are they basically exactly the same? Like, is there always going to be a built-in variation person to person? It depends on, it depends on the virus. Every, every virus manifests itself differently. But the key point here to make is, and we've seen it with COVID-19, Scott, is that uh, the way a person or patient reacts to COVID-19 is different. That's interesting to know because... You know, you and I, both of us can get COVID-19 and the way my body reacts to it, my health status, could be dramatically different than yours. And this is why now we're paying such a close attention to what underlying health conditions people have, uh, why are some patients escalating so rapidly to really bad health outcomes, while others, 81%, are mild and recover just normally. I think that will be interesting to study over time. And just as we wrap up, let's go back to that point, which is where we started on this one. Could that be one of the things that gets discussed or debated or um, sorted out as when we start to undo the restrictions, then mm-hmm. who do we let back to go out into the public? Where do we start this thing? Could it be a case where you have to establish that you don't have high blood pressure or diabetes or something? And if you don't have an underlying condition, yeah, you can start going back out and get back to work and we'll sort the other people out later. Or would that not work? I think that's actually an extremely smart uh, and intelligent policy to put forward. 
And that's, I think, what the government most likely is heading towards making that suggestion. And even if the government doesn't make that suggestion, I think common medical knowledge and logic would say that to be the case. So uh, I take it for myself. My mother has high blood pressure. She has high blood sugar. When we ease up things, will I advise my mother to uh, go back to Costco and, and grocery shop or some of her favorite things to do in life? No, I would say <laughs> you need to wait. Uh, she's been asking me this daily and I would say to her, no, you have to wait because we worry about a second wave and that's the second wave that we're concerned about people's underlying health conditions. Always appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this, Dr. Ahmad Firash Khalid. Uh, I'm sure we'll do it again next week. Love having you Happy here. Thanks for the time. You. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, there was a story that was published today that you will likely never see or never hear again, at least after this pandemic is done. You know, every Monday, you hear it on CHML, you will hear a news report about the weekend box office and what movies have done well and what movies haven't done well and what's number one and on and on and on. The entire U.S. box office this last weekend came from a single theater. Everything shut down. Came from a single theater, a Florida drive-in called the Ocala Ocala Drive-In reported that Resistance and Swallow, two movies that it was showing, grossed a total together of $33,456. That is it. You know all those reports when you hear that such and such a movie brought in $50 million in the opening weekend? Uh-uh. $33,456 was the entire reported gross for Hollywood in the States last weekend. I mean, the story is, it's crazy. It's a little funny in a sense. But it got me thinking about the entertainment world more broadly. We are sucking up all the Netflix and Crave and Disney Plus and whatever else we can get our hands on these days. Uh, By the way, Waco, new on Netflix, worth a watch. Wild Wild Country on Netflix, really worth a watch. But what happens six months or a year from now? There are no movies being shot. There are no TV shows being made. Every production has shut down. Are we about to enter an entertainment desert? Robert Thompson is the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. We always love having him on here. Mr. Thompson, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me yet again. Yeah, we, well, we love having you, and I, I assume you are also talking to me from the basement of your place like I am from mine. So, you know, it's a new world these days. Um, what are we going to be watching when the fall TV season usually launches? And I'm guessing there's not much ready to go. Well, it is true that there's going to be the, the you know, we're going to go, the, the new stuff will go through the backlog fairly quickly. But we ought to keep this in perspective that compared to, uh, you know, even when I was a kid growing up in the 60s and 1970s, there were three networks. Uh, they had 22 hours of prime time per week. Uh, and uh, that only went for nine months, and then it went into reruns. And that was all of the new program we had uh, at the time. Now, even if all production were to stop uh, and never come back again, um, there's an awful lot of stuff that uh, we haven't seen. Netflix alone, uh, to watch the entire run of what they've... uh, I mean, uh, they were releasing things, it seemed like, every five minutes for a while. It's true. There's a lot of stuff out there uh, to watch. But it is true, the the new material will, um, uh, will begin to dry up. However... We've got 
all the late night shows are back up and running from people's uh, houses. You're putting on new shows as we speak. Um, and I think also uh, a lot of these places are going to figure out, especially if this were to go on longer and longer and longer, uh, how to make uh, this kind of thing under these circumstances. There's a, what is that legal show, um, All Rise? Apparently they are going to have an episode on May 4th, I think it's supposed to air, which is has uh, been made after the quarantine uh, period. I'm not sure how that's going to look. Saturday Night Live had some, uh, wasn't live, among other things, but uh, they'll learn it. Saturday Night Live could actually do some really interesting things completely live uh, uh, if, if they were forced to. Uh, yeah, you know what? I mean, the long the... answer for saying uh, we should all, it's the least of our worries that come fall, we're not going to have new TV to watch. Well, and and on a on a graded scale of things that really matter in the world, absolutely. I mean, look, that, that, but it's something that, as I say, people are just sitting in front of their TVs now with so much time on their hands. And you mentioned something, studio heads. Um, I, I'm not one. Uh, I don't think you're one. Uh, and I know I'm not one. A because I've never developed a show, and B because I don't cash the paychecks that I believe they get either. Um, they get paid rather nicely. Is they this where we're going to cash those checks for them? Well, that's true. Is this where we're going to see which of them is worth the money that they make? Because this would seem to be the time when you're going to separate the men from the boys and the women from the girls, I would think. Yes, I think especially in in areas where you need a kind of constant source of uh, uh, new material. I think there are going to be a lot of not only studio uh, executives, but I think there are a lot of creative people uh, out there. The people who you know we think of that that write these things and produce them. Uh, there's potentially an entirely new generation of people that are coming up with ways that you can make compelling. Uh, um, entertainment in these kind of isolated situations. And we're already seeing a lot of it. I mean, if this would have happened 30 years ago, things really would have have, have dried up. Uh, David Letterman, in, back in the 80s, actually did a couple of episodes from his house as he was waiting for the cable guy to show up. It was a, a <laughs> big gag, and uh, uh, it, was, it was pretty funny. Um, but, uh, you know, before the Internet and before the, the capabilities we've got with uh, not only cameras in our phones, but really good cameras in our phones, moving uh, cameras as well, there's a lot that could be done under the circumstances we're in right now. People are just going to have to figure out it's going to be a different way of telling stories. Any idea if after, especially after 9-11, because that was sort of the first or the most recent, I mean, most of the people who are now in the TV or movie world uh, weren't involved in the war years and weren't involved before then. So 9-11 would have been the moment that they had their their shock and things became difficult. Any idea if as a result of that or any other reason they've ever put stuff away in cold storage, essentially, in case something came up so we have something to fall back on? Like a rainy day fund. Uh, yes. No, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting idea. I suppose uh, this may make people uh, uh, think twice about that, but most of what's be being held back uh, in 
Hollywood movies or television shows are only being held back because they want to wait for a Christmas release if it's a blockbuster or a uh, or a summer release. Uh, the idea of having a like some state budgets have a 15 percent uh, emergency fund. Uh, well-run companies uh, have these. Um, the idea that there is an emergency hundred movies waiting for something <laughs> like this to happen or a hundred series. No, I don't think anyone it that it is such a scarce commodity and then the other reason that would keep them from doing that is that this stuff has a shelf life on it uh yeah. if you make a uh, a series in you know 2017 and you keep it on the shelf for a rainy day and that rainy day doesn't happen till 2020 it's it's going to show its age Stuff evolves. It would, it would be almost like you know, uh, uh, saving milk for when it uh, when you. <laughs> yeah, and we know how that goes. Um, and I suppose though, uh, uh, instead of a rainy day fund, I suppose there could be some shows that are still available we haven't seen. But generally, with those shows, would the reason we haven't seen those shows be because after the studio saw them, they said, "Yeah, these aren't very good. We're not going to put these on the air." So if you were going to use that now. It's essentially saying you're getting our leftovers that we didn't want to show you initially. Yes, and and that's the uh, and I guess we summer had always been a an example of that in TV, where, whereas in summer all the pilots they didn't buy uh, uh, the, the all that kind of stuff they would burn those that material off in the summer. So it was uh, it was the leftovers, literally uh, the leftovers, and some of that stuff could really be interesting. I mean, sure, there are a lot of things out there, TV shows, movies, for whatever reason or another, uh, have not been released. But as you point out, there was usually a reason the first time around uh, that they wouldn't that they weren't released. There have been and a couple say, things. I'm Sorry, jump in. Who, and I do this for a living. I, I watch a lot of television. It's it's my, my job. And uh, it, it's even if com- any new stuff completely stops, uh, it would take me a long, long time to get caught up. Forget everything, even to get caught up with all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're right there. You know, there has been, there's been some bad stuff. I mean, I've seen some things, some attempts that have come out that you look at and you go, okay, not so great. But there have been a couple things in particular that I thought, you know what, kudos to the people who came up with the idea. One of them, you, I'm sure you didn't see this. It was up here. One of the sports networks played the bat flip game, the Jose Bautista bat flip game from 2015 against Texas and had Bautista and had the umpire in a little screen that they were interviewing as it was going yeah. on. And that was terrific. That was really well done. And the other one, and it was on, I think it was this week or it was late last week. It's all blending together, Robert. I can't keep track anymore. Uh, ABC did something really fun where they had a bunch of celebrities at home, either by themselves or with their kids singing famous Disney songs. And you know what? It sounds silly. It was actually pretty good. It was, it was yeah, cute was and it was good. good. The D- Disney sing-along, uh, that, that played an hour. They did that simulcast thing that played on ABC, NBC, CBS, all across streaming, bunch of cable channels. Uh, that, went, uh, that, that went for two hours. Um, and, of course, if we go into the vaults of history, uh, ESPN, of course, hit really hard by this because they've got you know they depend on live sports their entire content stream depends on people talking about live sports and live sports so when one goes away the other goes away but i have stumbled upon on espn three joe frazier muhammad ali fights 
Um, another fight that Muhammad Ali did when he was still Cassius Clay, uh, that kind of thing, you know, and creative programmers that package that uh, uh, together. If you're uh, if you're going back to um, uh, the vaults, you, you'd never run out of material. Well, you you can go back to the vaults. I don't know. Would it work to just go back to the vaults and just throw the thing up there? as it was or is there an expectation now that yeah we'll show you something that happened in the past but we're going to give you added value with some new fresh look at it through modern eyes or something like is there an expectation you'll give something extra to it or is just playing it again fine yeah i I think the the added value thing is is the key to how this would be packaged you've got to um i can really get my student i I teach a history of television class so in many ways uh, i show old stuff uh you know that's what my courses are about but but you can get a student to get really interested in something that happened and was aired in the 1960s that they've never heard of but you've got to sell it. You're right. It needs contextualization. It needs. Uh, uh, you've got to essentially market it ahead of time so they're you know excited to watch it. So you're right. I think just throwing it up there. Uh, people have been doing that for. That's what TV Land was all about. Old episodes mm. of, uh, uh, of of television shows. And even there, they did added value by those clever uh, uh, introductions and all that kind of thing. But uh, there's uh, again, if studios say stay shut for the long term, all of that material can be reprocessed, and we've got the technology now that uh, you don't have to go into an office to do that. The bigger issue, I would think, because you're right, TV has all of this that they can go back on and do something with, and you don't even need big cast because you've got all the material. You can do something to freshen it up. The bigger issue, I would think, is going to be movies because summer is coming. It's a big season, and uh, I don't know how far along all the production was. If summer is looked after, then certainly you're going to be looking at a dry spell after that. There's got to be a stretch here because there's no production. There, There has to be a period when movies are going to dry up. What, yeah, what happens and, then? And, and that's, that's even just one of the worries about movies. Uh, because with movies, if you're, if you're a Hollywood studio or you're, you're somebody that, uh, uh, that makes movies, you've now got an option that if all of a sudden all the theaters close down except that Ocala Theater in Florida, you've got other ways to release those movies. Michael Moore just uh, dropped his new documentary casually and for free. He talked about it on uh, one of the talk shows uh, last night or the night before. Um, A lot of these other films being released either early or for the first time for 19 bucks a pop, and you get to uh, rent it for, uh, you know, you'll be able to watch it for uh, three days or two days or whatever. They've got an option. Theater owners don't have an option. When the theaters close, they can't sell tickets, they can't sell popcorn, they, they're out of, uh, out of business. And that's my worry, not only, and you're right, there's going to be a period of catch-up if, uh, if we go three days with no production um, uh, being done, we're not going to have, that, that is going to dry up the, the supply chain, as everybody has uh, learned, to, uh, uh, learned to call it. What worries me, however, is that the content creators, the studios and all that, they'll come back because there's always going to be an appetite for that. Are we going to have so accelerated what was already happening, people watching stuff on their phones and their TVs as opposed to watching them in the theaters? 
are theaters ever going to come fully back from that? And I mm. think that's a really scary question, especially if you're a theater owner. A couple more. We have only about two more minutes left. And there is one group, there is one area, one business in the entertainment world that is loving this. And I, you know, I, I say that not with the human side of the sickness and stuff, but loving the business that's changing right now. Uh, Netflix reported it has 16 million new viewers. And I was doing a little bit of math, Robert. Robert, math was never my strong suit, but I did a little <laughs> math. At 10 bucks a month, Eve, roughly, just to round the number off, that's $160 million a month in additional revenue for them, which works out to almost $2 billion extra a year. That, they got to be loving what's happening here. Yeah, Netflix had just about gotten to its saturation in this country. They, they were depending upon uh, new subscriptions uh, overseas. Uh, anybody who was going to get Netflix had gotten Netflix, it seemed. And then this came along, and sure enough, it rattled the, uh, uh, the windows and uh, looked for other places. And uh, sure enough, Netflix found a lot of people uh, under the sofa cushions that had not yet subscribed. Um, and, of course, uh, it, it, this sounds so cruel, but streaming and quarantine are a match made in heaven. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And I, I, I'm now wondering whether, I mean, you mentioned a few moments ago that it did seem like every five minutes that Netflix was coming out with a new show to the point where we couldn't keep up. And, and some of them were great. And some of the Adam Sandler ones, for example, were awful. But anyway, um, do you expect that with that extra money, I guess they have three options. They don't spend it at all and just take the profit. Uh, they keep producing somehow their own content or they start buying up and paying extra to outbid the other streaming services and bring in all kinds of shows that are already produced and now they're going to be available on Netflix. What what option do you think they'll take? Well, I think that that third option is what uh, you know what they're doing. But Netflix used to be not the only game in town, but they were the big game in town. They've now got to play this uh, game with a lot of other, uh, not just competitors, but big competitors with deep pockets. Netflix has now got to compete with Disney Plus, which just came out in what November, uh, HBO Max, which comes good out timing, in eh? May, uh, Hulu and uh, Amazon Prime, which have been around for a while, Apple Plus. I mean, there are a lot of here. This this gives this puts a little humbling uh, note to Netflix's success. Um, for a long time, right up until very recently, the two most streamed things on Netflix were Friends and The Office. The Office has gone to NBC Peacock, I think, which starts very soon. And uh, Friends, if I'm not mistaken, has gone to HBO Max. So two of their biggest uh, things have gone elsewhere. So I think Netflix can't uh, take its money and run. It's going to need to keep... Um, giving people an excuse that they can't possibly stop their subscription because there's stuff in on there that they have to watch. It is, um, it's fascinating. You know, it, nobody obviously saw this coming. And I read today that Disney is now saying their parks may not open until 2021. And the guy who ran Disney for a long time, Bob Iger, meant that guy for starting Disney Plus and creating a revenue stream that probably has covered some of the costs from losing the parks, that guy, whatever bonus he got, I'm sure the Disney folks are not upset about paying it because... Uh, no, but uh, that Disney is an interesting case because when, when this coronavirus started, Iger was on top of the world. Disney yes. was a this mammoth uh, uh, sort of operation. And now the cruises, 
Disney has cruises. The parks, Disney has put a lot of eggs in the basket of things that are not virus friendly. And you're right, they've got Disney Plus. That was it, it was great to have that uh, uh, launched in time for this. But there's a lot of other headaches that Disney are, is going to have to deal with. He got out. He well, not only did he get Disney Plus up just in time, he got out just in time. So anyway, uh, Robert Thompson, we always love having you on the show. Thank you so much for doing this today. Stay well. You too, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.